Hi, this is Greg Penny, and you're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with my buddies Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. It's the weekly music news for the new music business. This week, we turn our focus to Billboard's latest deep dive, the distribution revolution. And amongst that, music distribution, how it works for labels and streaming. Streaming platforms as distributors, does it work? Music distributors for indie artists, how to pick the right one. Independent distribution tips, advice, and FAQs. And top music distribution companies. Jay, I don't know if we've ever had such an action-packed episode. It's a lot. Is this. (laughs) My desk is strewn with notes. (laughs) It's going to be exciting, but boy, we have to talk about this stuff. It is super important. We are glad you're here, we being Jay and myself. So yes, kick back, relax. This is going to be a very exciting episode, and this is the Your Morning Coffee Podcast, and we are going to get started right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 Standing by. Your morning coffee. The weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. My goodness, Jay, it has been... It has been a week. Our week ended on such a high note. Oh, uh, we were together all day yesterday, which yeah. was a rarity for us. Yeah. Um, we, we got to have a little uh, lunch. We got to spend some time in the studio with a couple of legendary producers. And we had our friends from Apple uh, come and join us. And we listened to some amazing music, um, some amazing spatial audio dolby atmos mixes it was the highlight of my week highlight of my month yeah it was so fun and it was of course at greg penny studio and uh, nearby is bruce botnick as well so we got to hang with both guys which was which is uh, legends in the business without a doubt we'll talk and a little bit about their pedigree just I mean, you well, could talk for hours, but sure. But it, well, in the in the in the in the, uh, in the realm of spatial audio, uh, Greg Penny did the first Atmos mix for music, and he did Rocket Man from Elton John. He and Elton John go way, 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 way back. They have been friends forever, and uh, and he was actually at the recordings of the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road album as a as a just out of high school, 
actually. His family was friends with Elton. And so he's, he's, worked, he's worked with Elton for, for decades. And, uh, and, of course, that track, Rocket Man, in that mix, really kicked the ball down the field and got everybody, in terms of the DSPs, interested in spatial audio and immersive audio. And uh, so we just got to hear some of the stuff that he has been working on. And then, of course, just, I mean, literally across the parking lot is Bruce Botnick. And Bruce Botnick, if you don't know, amongst other things, he was the engineer for Beach Boys albums. He's been around the, the business forever, but of course doors. he is most he's remembered yeah. for so many different things, but amongst them are the doors. He engineered the first three albums. And as we heard yesterday, Paul Rothschild was the producer of those first albums, but he was in a relationship with uh, Janis Joplin when she died. And he was so distraught and not really liking the songs they were working on that he said, I'm not gonna I'm not going to participate on this next album. And yeah. then so Bruce took over as producer of that. And so uh, we were up there a time back and we were listening to some of the Doors immersive tracks. And there is nothing, <laughs> I, I, you can't compare when you're listening to it yourself, when, but when you're listening to the guy that was in the studio with the knobs over the console talking to the guys in the band at yeah. the time in 1967, yeah. 68, 69. Um, and you talk about a legend, you know, and he was he was the engineer for Good Vibrations, you know, so yeah. amongst some pretty iconic stuff. So it was Absolutely. a fun day, it a really, really fun day. And then after that, I went and saw Bruce Hornsby live, which nice. was another How was that? nice thing. It was fantastic. Yeah, cool. I'm a huge fan. So awesome. fun stuff, Jay, fun stuff. But we've got so much to talk about. Um, uh, and like I said, my desk is strewn with notes and things we're going to cover. But this this Billboard deep dive that they did. Uh, was absolutely fantastic. So we're going we're gonna to get to that in a yeah. second. But of course, we couldn't do the show, Jay, without the the lovely help of our sponsors. And we are so fortunate to have sponsors to to help us put this show together, including, of course, our friends over at Banzoogle, built for musicians, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, uh, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your, uh, your, <laughs> your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, which is all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Your Morning Coffee podcast is also brought to you by HypeBot since uh, 2004, actually. HypeBot has chronicled this new music industry, all the trends, technologies, uh, you know, changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform, Bands in Town, and speaking of Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform, connecting over 550,000 artists with their superfans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Uh, so thank you so much to HypeBot, Bands in town and our good friends over at Banzoogle. 
Yes, indeed. And by the way, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about, Jay. Before we get started on the whole distribution thing, great article, again, in Billboard um, on Crunch Digital and Temp. And uh, I know you know Crunch Digital, Keith, Keith, Bern, uh, Keith Bernstein over at Crunch Digital. Yeah. And what an interesting article talking about um, licensing song for start licensing songs for startups uh, with this this platform called Tempo. And boy, it is so. I don't think everybody really appreciates how hard it is to get the, the important information about ownership of of masters. Uh, ownership of publishing when you want to license songs. It is not, we've been in the business forever, and it's really hard for us to track that information down. Imagine just the general public that wants to do some licensing. This really is a, a wonderful uh, tool to, to get that information easily and quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a game changer. You know, I've known Keith for over 20 years. Um, this Billboard article, by the way, uh, was written by Kristen Robinson. And the headline was, Industry Veteran Wants to Make Licensing Songs for Startups a No-Brainer with Tempo. And uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the kind of the subtext uh, here is, Crunch Digital's Keith Bernstein on empowering new businesses to know more about proper licensing. He says, music has value and music is undervalued. Yeah, but not only that, you had a chance to chat with him. Yeah, I, I did. Um, after the story went, uh, the Billboard story went out. Um, you know, I I spoke with Keith uh, this week about it. Uh, well, in fact, uh, take a listen. Keith, thanks for joining me today. You know, I have a couple questions for you. It feels like we're entering in a new era in this music business where we're frequently discussing fairness as it relates to how songwriters are paid, the overall value of music as it relates to other businesses and products. You know, for example, Peloton. You've been a pioneer in this space for decades. Talk about the progress you've seen since the A&M days. Um, I really don't think, oh, if you measure progress by revenue growth, uh, I don't think there's progress in that regard. I, I think we've regressed. You know, if I go back to 1999, 2000, around that time, you know, things were rolling, but you could see what was what was coming. And I think that we're, you know, we're fighting for better rates. Um, I believe the leverage sits more with the DSPs. Um, you know, it's not as much where it used to be with the labels and publishers, but what's ironic about that is these services wouldn't have a service without the music. So, you know, I, I think when you look at the valuations of some of these companies using music, that we would progress if we can just really get a fair share of what we should get. And, and that that's what I know the NMPA and others are fighting for. And, and I wish we could make that number even bigger because it deserves to be bigger. But right now, I, I just think that um, we, we just, for some reason, don't hold the cards to really get what we deserve in terms of valuing music and, and the rates. So this week in Billboard, I was reading about you and about a platform you're launching called Tempo. And the way that I see it, and correct me if you see this differently, is it, it really helps to simplify a process that can be pretty daunting to somebody outside of the music industry. You know, if you're looking to license music for your business, uh, a fitness app, for example, you can input a list of tracks into Tempo that you'd like to license, and the platform will give you information about the labels and publishers and what you'll need to do to get your request approved. Is that somewhat accurate? 
you, you got some of it. So we're going to make sure you get a free account so that you can actually use it. And we can straighten that out. Um, the, uh, so here's, here's, here's what I saw is what was missing. And I, and I think it's great that, you know, now you're talking about the MLC and they're building databases and there's more authoritative databases and people now can maybe find maybe who they should license from. Okay. We're, we're getting at a good place where we can start finding people, but what I saw is missing and, Early a minute ago, you mentioned Peloton or companies like Peloton. Here's what's so interesting: when you look at a lot of the infringement cases and you look at a lot of you know the uh, the lawsuits going on, many of them involve companies who already have a bunch of licenses. And it's like, well, what? well, hold on, they're licensed. What's the issue? The issue is that when you get these licenses and you get these large catalogs of music, that's where some of the problems now lie. That the companies who have these licenses can't figure out what they can or cannot use under their deals. And when you're talking about a couple label deals with maybe seven publisher deals, how is a company going to, on their own, put together the collective song shares, uh, you know, across songs and see if, if they have 100% and are they cleared on the label side? So what we saw was missing was a tool where people that have existing licenses can actually confirm whether or not they can use the music under the licenses that they have. And to the extent that a song comes up as not available, then they actually get the information to know um, who's missing, you know, what wasn't licensed. So Tempo really, you know, becomes that needed tool gateway to allow people to know in advance whether something they want to use is available under the licenses. And, and that's where I felt, um, you know, the solution was needed, a solution was needed. Awesome. Thanks for the clarity, Keith. Thanks for joining us. So after the story went out, Keith received over 5,000 visits to his LinkedIn page and, and countless emails. <laughs> That's what happens, right? If, if nothing else, that is a testament to the importance of, this, of, of having these tools and, of course, making it easy for folks to license music. And, of course, we've talked a lot about you know, how, how licensing of music has been such a gigantic uh, uh, element of profitability for all of these music companies and yeah. how that is continuing to grow and that was always an element of things when we were in the when we started in the business but that just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger as the pelotons of the world you know use which is the one that kind of used gets mentioned often at the moment but there will be others and uh it, it's a wonderful tool and he's been he's been kind of doing versions of this for a very long time and working in this space and yeah. um it's dense, baby. It is dense, and anything yeah. to make that process easier. Yeah, is, it takes this complex important. thing that is, um, you know, can be challenging to understand, and really simplifies it. So sign up uh, for Tempo at CrunchDigital.com. Yes, indeed. And by the way, when I do this show every week, it is a treat for me because I got to hang out with my good friend of more than almost. I'm, I'm we're kind of pushing 25 years, I think, in yeah. terms of knowing each other. Yeah, good lord. My buddy Jay Gilbert, he is the co-founder of music and marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. Not just a pretty face. Not and just a pretty face. Sleep. The man does not sleep. <laughs> he does so many interesting things, and he is uh, a groovy dude. And I thank appreciate you so it. much. And we got for to that. hang out almost yeah. all day yesterday. Yeah, that's always a pleasure when you and I get to hang out and talk shop. Uh, this guy sitting across from me, Mike Etchard, is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI. 
and universal music, and really the guy who's opened my mind to all things uh, spatial audio. So I thank you for that. Yes, indeed. And because Jay does not sleep, he can do even more podcasts than this, including the behind the set list with the with Josh Groban. Which is is that is that coming or did you do it, I it, do I it did, drop this last it week? Dropped. That's right. Um, Thank you for that. You know, my uh, my friend Glenn Peoples from Billboard, he and I do this podcast called Behind the Set List. And it's just been so much fun to talk to artists about the songs they play live. Like, why do you play this cover? Why do you open for this? And we've had some amazing um, conversations. Kurt Smith from Tears for Fears, Ani DeFranco, Ann Wilson from Heart. The list goes on and on. Uh, anyway, we dropped the Josh Groban uh, episode this last week. And uh, he's a really, really great storyteller and a hardcore uh, music guy. And then one other podcast I'll mention really quickly. I, I've been doing the Music Biz, music biz Weekly podcast. That's easy for you to say. Um, with Mike Brandvold for, I gosh, we're over 500 episodes. And there was an episode we dropped this last week that's really interesting. And it was about this story about this band called Walden. And we had their manager and their singer on. They did a 50-state tour. Um, it was 51 dates because they did two in California, LA and San Francisco, but they did Alaska, they did Hawaii. And a lot of it was fan funded. You know, they would sleep on couches. They would, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is on their website, instead of just buy my CD or my t-shirt, there would be an option to buy us a tank of gas. And so they would, uh, you know, take a picture of themselves filling up the tank and sign the Polaroid and send it to the person who contributed. And they had fans that helped them get on planes to Alaska and Hawaii. But it was just a wonderful conversation. So check that out. Uh, Walden. It was their Where's Walden tour. And they're such a cool band. And the last thing I'll say about them is on this trip across all 50 states, they had someone who was taking photos and doing video and they created a video uh, for one of their songs that you can find on YouTube. And it's got some of the highlights of some of that video of them across the country performing that song. Oh, you know, yeah. And it's just stunning. One of the best videos I've ever seen. Well, and <clears throat> what made me think of this, because I just finished, as I've mentioned before, the, the SST Records book, which is fascinating. And that is so much the way all of those punk bands, those, those L.A.-based punk bands, toured in the 80s, which is the same thing, essentially. So, you know, What's here we old are. is new again. That's exactly right. It's, so it's fun to, uh, to kind of hear about that sort of seat-of-your-pants kind of touring and with, with help, and, and it's it, not that much has changed in many ways. And uh, I tip my hat to those guys, because it's hard work when you tour at that level like that. It's hard. It is hard work, and you may play for two people in a nightclub one night, and then yep. you may pl play for thousands at a festival the next, and it's, it's hard work. Um, but it can be very rewarding just based on the relationships that you make along the way. Yeah. Um, and I always say the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, and yep. that's how you find that luck. Um, uh, kind of a sad note this week, uh, a legend in this music business uh, passed away. Yes, he did. Mo Austin. And both Jay and I worked in the Warner Music Groups at different times. And uh, safe to say that there probably hasn't been uh, in the entire history of the business. You, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more important than Mo Austin was to, to the growth and the nurturing of artists in the Warner Music Group, Warner Brothers Records, and a guy who started as uh, Frank Sinatra's accountant 
and came over with Reprise Records when that was Frank's label, but when it got absorbed into Warner Brothers Records and built arguably one of the most successful record companies in the history of the industry and not only known for its financial success, but also for its artistic success. Yeah. You know, talk about a catalog <clears throat> um, second to none uh, over the years and, and devoted artists to him and uh, just a remarkable guy, a well, well-lived life, passed away, I think he was 95, yeah. and a local, a local guy, you know, yeah. and, and I didn't realize until I, that, uh, until I read that, I think he went to Fairfax High School, I knew he went to UCLA, and uh, I saw Burt Bacharach at uh, Royce Hall before the pandemic, and, uh, you know, that Mo has, I think, had donated about $10 million to UCLA in, the, in his name and his late wife's name, and... Um, Bert Bert called out Mo in, at the beginning of the concert, saying, "Well, you know, nice to see you here, Mo." And uh, yeah, an amazing guy. And I got to see him every morning when I worked at Warner Brothers Records. And uh, he was so pleasant, so nice, and you know, just another legend that has passed. And yeah. uh, you yeah, worked pretty closely him. with several legends in those years. Talk a talk a bit about that. I find that so fascinating. Just that. Uh, you know, episode yeah, well, of talent. I was I was so lucky. I I was at SST Records, and you know, I was, I was working for a little indie label, and then I got hired to be an assistant to one of the senior executives at Warner's. And this executive um, was highly thought of by both Lenny and Mo. So my so they had his office right between theirs, and and there I was sitting in the desk in front. <laughs> so every morning. They would just, you know, I, they, they couldn't not see me. And, uh, and it, you know, I would try to work late and they would, you know, when, when most of the rank and file was gone, those guys would come out and kind of sit around. And, and so it, it would just be me and, and, and this person that I worked for and these two legends. And it was just, you know, I was just so lucky to kind of yeah. be in their presence and just be a fly on the wall, which yeah. I was. And I only got to meet Mo twice. Uh, one was briefly... Um, and then the other one, I was in a meeting uh, with him, and it was a little intimidating just knowing yeah. who he was. But he, you know, he calms things down right away. He's just very gentle, you know, very funny, very smart, and uh, he will be sorely missed. Absolutely. And there's a wonderful piece you can go on the LA Times website that Robert Hilburn wrote talking. And, and, what was unique about him, not only in his skill set and the way he, he created and, and ran those companies, um, is that he was just, he was not somebody who tried to get publicity for himself and in fact did the opposite. He, he said, uh, you know, my artists are the ones you want to talk to. You don't want to talk to me. And in fact, I don't believe ever really sat down for a full interview. That's until pretty rare in the end. music business, right? Yes, it is incredibly rare. And so, uh, but they did, you know, when, when, and, it, and it's an interesting, uh, um, there's a, there's a, a good book out on Warner Brothers records and the rise of it. And, you know, it's also tragic to see how it, it was just kind of, let go basically in terms of, of once they got rid of Mo and how all the things that he built very quickly got changed, you know, yeah. and it was, it was a f sad thing after Steve Ross's passing. End of an era. End of an era. And, um, but that's the business of music, you know, yeah. and uh, things change and even that changed for the worse, yeah. I think. It's a, sh it's a shame, but uh, boy, what a, what a interesting and fascinating human being and Iconic. well loved Absolutely. and well missed. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So this week we're going to dig into this Billboard 
deep dive. It's called The Distribution Revolution. And there's several amazing stories uh, that we want to touch on. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about labels versus distribution. Um, Labels and distributors are frequently used interchangeably, um, but they're completely different animals with very little overlap in roles and responsibilities. And I, I want to take a look... Uh, at the differences. And this is from a piece I wrote for HypeBot last year. But I have to preface it by saying that this is evolving and changing. So what Mike and I are going to do right now is tell you from speaking and working with labels and distributors, Mm -hmm. we're going to outline what typically are the roles and responsibilities. But I want to, the one caveat here is that this is evolving and changing um, all the time. This is not hard and fast. So um, let, let's kick it off with you, Mike. Let's, let's talk about distributors. Sure. So uh, generally speaking, when we talk about distribution and distributors, this is kind of what they typically handle. So they do global digital distribution and monetization. That's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Both physical and digital product release coordination. Okay. Uh, best practices in troubleshooting across the DSPs and social platforms. Huge. Uh, Surface insights and analytics on release performance. They pitch to DSPs for playlists and marketing programs. They're involved with content ID and channel optimization on YouTube. They are involved with social media verifications, Mm -hmm. rights management, potentially pitching for sync licensing. Yep. And of course, pseudo videos, the cover image and the audio bed they are involved with as well. Right. So that's that's distribution. Typically, the only thing I would add to that is I find the value of distribution in the problem solving that you have someone if you have a strong distributor, something's going to go wrong. It does. And you need somebody who you can talk to who can solve problems. Um, And it's very, very powerful stuff when you're dealing with in-grooves, the Orchard, Symphonic. These are problem solvers, and they have relationships and weekly meetings with the social platforms and with the DSPs. So it's not all about chasing playlists, right? It's problem solving. Um, And also, you you touched on data and analytics. Uh, Typically, they have a dashboard, and they have internal people that can do analytics, it can be very, very helpful in growing your business. Okay, so Mike just covered distributors. Let's talk about what labels have typically handled. Release strategy and putting together a marketing plan. Radio promotion. Publicity, whether they outsource it or they do it in-house. Sync licensing. Now, we, we mentioned pitching for syncs in distribution, but most of that happens on the label side. And then you get into creative things like video and photography. Uh, advertising campaigns. And although, again, with a lot of this stuff, there is these blurring lines. There's a lot of powerful advertising that distribution does as well. Um, That full digital marketing strategy, online assets, uh, that may include, you know, music videos, banner sets, all of those kinds of things. And then they schedule uh, events for their artists, uh, except for in-stores. Typically, that's handled by distribution. So that just kind of lays the land for... What does a label do? What does a distributor do? But of course, as we mentioned, distribution is taking on more and more label roles. Some of them are giving advances. Um, Some of them are really getting involved in helping artist managers and labels with, with branding and creative and advertising. So 
there are some distributors that really act like a label, and there's some labels that do their own distribution, which we're going to talk about in a second. But right. that's, that'll and just I, tee this up. Exactly. And I do want to mention, too, you know, you, to, to see where you're going, you have, to know where, you have to know where you've been. And, you know, just a quick history on distribution. It's worth mentioning that, you know, when, when you and I got in the business, of course, um, there were major label distributors. There were indie distributors. But if you go back even before that, pre-1970, there were record companies and there were independent they were all independent uh, distrib- distribution companies, right. and they were typically regional. And, uh, you know, back in those days, even when I kind of was a little kid buying stuff, you could buy records at hardware stores. You could buy records at Western Auto. I remember going to the Broadway, which was the precursor to Macy's, to right. buy records. And tickets. And- and tickets, that's exactly, we talked about that, and tickets as well. And so um, th- that kind of the, was the world of, of distribution. And then there was another layer in between that. So if you were like a, hall, a small hardware store in Oxnard, California, let's say, you probably didn't have enough uh, business to go directly to your regional distributor. You would go typically to something called a one-stop. And those one-stops were for small players in the, in the retail business that didn't, again, have the volume to to be able to go to these uh, regional distributors. Um, but that was kind of the landscape that existed. And one of the things, that, as I read all of these things, is like you said, you know, and then we grew up in the uh, in terms of our careers in the major label system. I was in indies first and then major labels. And that was fairly cut and dried as to what they did. And those, of course, came about because uh, around in the very early 70s, the some of the larger record companies wanted their own distribution network because they felt they weren't getting the services they deserved or wanted from the all these regional indies. And so right. that's kind of how things got to be where they are today. Right. We should also mention though that all of these all of these articles that you put in the in the newsletter and that we're going to be talking about are um, only accessed through Billboard Pro. And that is an incredibly valuable resource if you're not yes. getting Billboard Pro. I think it ends up being about ten ninety nine a month, um, but that gives you a lot more access to the Billboard pantheon of information and stories and things like that. Very worthwhile though to have that subscription. Right, and there's other benefits. Uh, there's some really great weekly emails that they put out. One is on kind of the legal beat. One that Glenn Peoples does called the Ledger, which is one of my favorite kind of recaps every week on what's going on in the music industry. But before we kind of jump into this, I, I want to mention Henry Droz uh, from uh, WIA, from that Warner mm-hmm. Music Group. I had the pleasure of working with uh, with Henry, and he is really kind of the architect of modern day uh, distribution. He was the one who decided that there would be regional offices across the country and regional teams. And yeah. that's what all the majors sort of model themselves after. And... Uh, uh, he has since passed away. I I had so many great years and great conversations with Henry Droz and learned a lot from him. Uh, but uh, another icon in that uh, music business again. And and if if you came into the business kind of in the last twenty years or so, you don't really get a view of of how influential. Warner, the Warner Music Group was that's which included the labels, of course, Warner Brothers, Elektra, and Atlantic. And top to bottom, that organization was just—they were really, you know, the the kind of the pinnacle in terms yeah. of 
again, in terms of artist development and and lots of market intangible share, things and market the talent, share they and, were the, yes. the king of the hill for decades. Yes, absolutely, and and in fact, just a most of those of those iconic individuals that really were in were putting all of that that. Uh, that big machine together have, have left us. They, they have gone on. And sadly, so, um, yeah. sadly, yeah, but we, I, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing but honored to have even just kind of hung with some of those people, as you just said, I, over the years, it's like, I, I yeah, think it's, it's absolutely really amazing. So here are the stories. There, there was a series of stories in this deep dive and let's just really quickly talk about, uh, you know, maybe, uh, a little bit about each one and then we'll, we'll dive in. The first one was the evolution and boom of music distribution. And they said that data and marketing are now part of the business of distribution and that business is booming. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, you know, we talk so much about data and the, and, and the plethora of information that you have to parse through. And, um, it's 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 so much to catch up on to understand and you know that's that is again one of the you always got some data right from I mean you worked in distribution in the in the early days of your career um, there were uh, there was data that was parsed and talked about but nothing on the order that we're talking about today no no we had we had data on on sales you know typically it was CDs and vinyl and cassettes and you know we'd get reports and we set up these systems where on street date. Um, our top reps that had the national accounts across the country would kind of type into a mainframe, you know, what their sales yes. were at, you know, uh, Musicland and Warehouse and Camelot and, you know, all of that, Tower Records. And so we could see it that way on the physical side, but it was more complicated because there was the shipments, there was the returns, there were the sales, there, there was a lot in play there. Today with digital we can see consumption basically live time and it's, it's changed the world. Well, and it's not only, you know, what has also changed, of course, and we talk a lot about it on this podcast is the unbelievable throughput of new product coming into the marketplace around the clock, every second. Um, there was a lot of product in our day at the beginning, a lot of physical product, but nothing on the order that we're talking about today. So it is, it is, we couldn't have have imagined a scenario like we have today where we have all of these new tracks uploaded every day to all the DSPs. And it's stunning when you, when you think about that and that is more and more and more and more and more data that has to be kind of collected, parsed. Exactly. Exactly. So, but of course the business is booming because of all of that input of, of material, right. The distributors are making some fairly substantial bank. Yeah, they're calling it a boom. You know, it was uh, Matt Burns who co-founded Universal-owned InGrooves. Um, he said it's fair to call it a boom. Um, it's possible this might just be the beginning of a bigger boom. And I find that really interesting as well. You know, um, Hard to imagine a bigger boom, but it's probably likely, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Warner has ADA uh, worldwide, and that's been around for almost 30 years, you know, which is like you know, in grooves or the orchard and, you know, they work with indie artists and labels and uh cat critic, you know, who is the president of ADA said, you know, they're having a moment. Right. And we, we kind of talk about, you know, we use the phrase, the majors, which really is from an older era, but it's, what's interesting to see is you've got, you've got Sony, you've got Warner's, you've got universal, they've got their own internal distribution companies, but they also own other 
dis- distribution platforms, which is pretty unique the way it's kind of, and, and not everything, you know, and, and not everything goes through one or the other. It's, right. it's very interesting and, and complex how distribution has evolved from the beginning of our careers until where we are right now. Right. And in one of the future pieces we're going to cover here in a couple of minutes, um, a couple of people break this down, the different levels of distributors from DIY all the way, you know, to uh, the majors. And I, I think that's really interesting. You know, this all came about, well, InGroove started out, you know, just trying to answer the question, you know, how do you get from point A to point B? Meaning, how do you get a master song to Apple? You know, and so distribution's roles and responsibilities, even given what we've outlined, it's there's a lot to it with it's it's not so simple in coding and delivering music and metadata accurately to, you know, uh, so many DSPs globally and mm-hmm. then making sure that all of the accounting is taken care of properly and, uh, you know, making sure that everything's uh being accounted for, but also up on these DSPs properly and then solving those problems. Uh, it's not that distribution is more or less important. It's just different. Way different. Way different. You know, they, they talk in here about um, uh, one of the indie distributors, Create Music Group. They work with 25,000 artists and 2,500 labels. I mean, that's that's unheard of. I mean, and but it was unheard of. It's not unheard of now, but that that goes to show you the scope and the quantity that we're talking about. That how much, how many, how much product and and relationships they have to manage. Yeah. It's, it's 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 such a higher order of magnitude than anything that we ever saw in the old music business. The new digital music business is just enormous. Yeah. And before we jump to the next one. Um, there's a piece, uh, a paragraph in here that I thought was really interesting where um, they had kind of asked the question, you know, why are distributors so crucial for major labels in the streaming era? And uh, Darius Van Arman, who is the co-CEO of uh, the Secretly Group, um, he said it's because distributors use longstanding connections and relationships to communicate with streaming services, physical retailers, radio stations, emphasizing certain tracks amid a fire hose of new releases. He said, with distributors, we have two hours with you, Spotify, this week. We're sending a thousand releases your way, but we can't talk about all of them. So here's our priority. And I think that's really, really important that when you have a distributor, whether it's a label that's acting as a distributor or one of these DIY or whether it's, you know, these major indies, they can't, uh, pull the trigger on every single release and make it a priority they have to they have to prioritize by genre and mood uh every week uh, for the digital service providers it's an enormous job it really is and when you're talking about again that that use of the phrase a fire hose of of new music coming in it's it's an um, again we talk about it all the time but it's an enormous amount of stuff that has to be Dealt with in some way or not, and um, your right. distributor is is the person that's going to do that. Remember, you can't you can't load directly into Spotify. You have well, to you could for a moment, and that's the, moment, that tees yes. us up into this next yes. piece because it talks about that. This is from Elias Light. Um, why streaming platforms are getting into distribution, right? And to mm-hmm. your point, you know, uh, Spotify, you know, jumped into it, but less than a year later, 
they jump back out. And there are people, well, platforms like TikTok and SoundCloud that are kind of venturing into, you know, uh, this market of of distribution. You know, in March, TikTok officially launched Sound On, and that was their distribution marketing services that we were reading about. Um, TikTok's global head of music, Ole Oberman, said that the aim was to ensure that every aspiring musician in the world thinks, I want to start my musical career and journey, and I'm going to do it on TikTok. And I've had some really interesting conversations lately about TikTok because TikTok is kind of the, you know, the pretty girl in the block right now. And there's some lazy A&R people who are only focusing on what's popping on TikTok. There's some label mm-hmm. people that... Um, not many, but there are some that are just focusing on grabbing the latest thing just so they can bump up their market share. And we won't get into the whole pro rata user centric thing, but because the way that streaming pays out, it really helps them to have more market share. And I wonder if TikTok becomes a label and a distributor, then they're going to see earlier than anyone else um what's starting to bubble up and pop and they can grab it for themselves and monetize that it it makes for a real interesting situation <laughs> it certainly does but i think part of the gist of this of this particular section is folks at the at the existing longtime distributors seemed many of whom of course are speaking on the condition of anonymity um they kind of view this with a bit of a shrug it's like yeah it's like, okay, sounds good, says one veteran in the sector. Um, but managers who want their artists to have as many options as possible, competition usually means more service for less commission or more receptive. So, you know, when you talk about the perspective of other competing distributors versus the perspective of, of an artist manager or an artist themselves, you can see the interest of, of being involved directly with TikTok. Absolutely. Absolutely. Will it last? I mean, if you look into your crystal ball, like you said, Spotify jumped in and then went, oh, I don't really want to be here. And then they jumped out. Right. And we talk about SoundCloud here, right? Well, last week we talked about market share. SoundCloud is a rounding error compared to, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, some of these other platforms, even though they, you know, I think most DSPs now have around 80 million tracks. And SoundCloud, I believe, is pushing closer to 300 million tracks. But the barrier to entry is so low there. Like you and I could record something on an iPad today and upload it onto SoundCloud and we're, we're off and running, right? And I think that because of that, they've got this massive size and people want to be involved in that, thinking that that's also a massive audience. And I'm not saying that they don't have a strong audience, but you know they've SoundCloud has cut deals with like uh, Lil Pump and Techno, and they used to work with major labels. Um, you know when a streaming service with the reach and influence of SoundCloud or even TikTok, when they add distribution or let's say artist services, on paper that has the potential uh, to be powerful. Um, I just haven't seen it in practice yet. We're going to talk in a minute about. Um, uh, DistroKid and how much you know, it's like 30 to 40 percent of the music uploaded every week, according to them, uh, it goes through DistroKid. But you only have so many hours in a day to and, and, and a limited staff. 
you can't to to the point earlier you can't make 1000 releases a week priority and give them marketing and targeted online mm-hmm. advertising it still has to be that top x percent that's going to get that that marketing push you know adding gasoline to that fire uh, a lot of it uh, a friend of mine refers to as pipes you know some of these distribution platforms they're just pipes they get your music out there mm-hmm. but it's up to you to drive traffic and make people care right and you know we were talking a little bit about the old music business and it's it's worth noting you know here we've got this problem with all of this through all of this uh, this voluminous um, amount of music being added every day you know people rightly complain about the old music business the major label thing with with gatekeepers and all of that but in those days you know for the most part a label would sign an act and they would put money into it they would and then they would also give it maybe one or two or three additional albums to develop and so as as hard as it was to break into that system in the day at least they did they did do what they should have done in the in most cases, in many cases, maybe yeah. not most, but in, in you know they would put money into it and try to develop artists. Right. And when you have this gigantic throughput right now of stuff coming in, it's really hard as consumers, obviously, to to find the music that you're interested in, and it's really hard for distributors. It's really, everybody throughout the chain is 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 um, not necessarily doing what you should do for artist development. And because right. there's just so much stuff. And like you're talking about SoundCloud and all of the music that's on SoundCloud. and But it's so easy to get up on SoundCloud. It's so easy to create music. Not necessarily good music, but who's to decide what's good. Right. Um, so all of these things we're talking about, when it's just such a gigantic amount of stuff. And yeah. oh, it's really a, a tough, tough business now. Well, you talk about so artist development, Mike, and that I remember when I was at Universal, Henry Droz and Jim Urie came over, and one of the first things they created um, was this, this saying in this artwork that said, you know, we stand for artistry and artist development. And that was stressed at every meeting that we had. And it was really interesting that when there were releases coming out, we put together plans for all of those releases. And yes, you have to throw gasoline on the fire, you know, when something starts to pop. Um, But today it's a little bit more disposable. I think TikTok is interesting in that, um, it reminds me of kind of uh, these deals they used to have um, years ago where you would get three singles. I believe Travis Tritt's um, original deal was for three singles. And then they right. work it at radio. And if it hit, then you'd have uh, the right of first refusal to put out the album. And that's becoming pretty um, popular now. I was talking to an artist mm-hmm. last week that has a deal with a label where it's four tracks a year. That's all he has to release. Has no mention of EPs or albums. And like we talked about last week, there are people that are popping, um, breaking out from TikTok who maybe haven't even completed writing an entire song. Maybe what's popping is a segment of a song, right? And maybe they haven't played a live show before. So it's, it's when you talk about artist development, that takes time and it takes a little bit of money. And I'm not sure today that the, the, the artist development is taking place like it used to. I can tell you that at some of the best labels that we talk about, they still have dedicated staffs that are working on artist development. 
Uh, but it's not everywhere. It's not everywhere. It is not everywhere. What's interesting, too, about the whole SoundCloud and TikTok thing is that, so TikTok's uh, thing is called Sound On, right. but it's powered by TuneCore, powered by TuneCore, one of the other distributors. So again, a lot of these things, you're, you're seeing um, these sort of hybrid kind of interesting combinations of companies that are doing things together. And it's, that is a dramatic change from the way it used to be so static in terms of you, you kind of knew where you stood, who yeah. was, who and was maybe the label, siloed. who was distributing. Yeah. And yeah, it was siloed then. And it's so not siloed now. No, um, because they're saying, you know, let's go to where the party is, you know, with yes. sound on, you know, TikTok is not the distributor, you know, um, that TuneCore, CD Baby, DistroKid, or any of those DIY kind of places are. They don't have the reach or the expertise there. And so these other distributors, they can make sure that this music gets on every DSP globally. Right, exactly. But as we mentioned, you know, you can kind of see while some of the distributors are, the existing distributors are a bit skeptical about sound on, you know, again, when you're, if you're managing an artist, um, with a young act, it's pretty sexy to want to, to want to be with TikTok in any way you can be with TikTok. You know, the opportunity to work with TikTok was a no brainer. One of the managers said, so, you know, how can you, you know, they, will they, will they be a a, a super popular destination for this? Well, we'll see. We'll talk about it over the next several months for sure. And maybe in a year they will have decided like, uh, like Spotify did to go, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not so sure we want to be right. doing this. And I think the it's big elephant... Resources, it's a big commitment. Yeah. I think the big elephant in the room is if you go through Sound On, will you have an edge at TikTok that the other artists won't? And I think that remains to be seen uh, if that's the case. Um, as we move forward, there's a couple of other pieces I want to touch on from this deep dive. These are all individual pieces. Um, this is uh, another one, you know, we talked about the Keith Bernstein story written by Kristen Robinson. She also wrote this piece for Billboard and the headline is Picking the Right Distributor, Seven Tips for Indie Artists. And I go through this conversation every single week. There are certain distributors that you have to be invited to. There are certain ones, you know, that anyone can get on. And each distributor sort of has their, their strengths. Um, yes. you know, um, I know like in grooves is killing it with Latin music. Symphonic is their superpower is monetization, right? There's such great experience over, you know, at the orchard, there's, there's all sorts of places, uh, where you can distribute your music. And I really, I really appreciate this piece because, um, this is one of those, I think I'm going to print out when I have those conversations because it really amplifies the message and I'll just start. I'll kick it off with the first one. They say, you need to know your needs before you sign mm-hmm. up with a distributor. You know, you need to come to the table with what you've got, where you're at, and, and what you're willing to put into it. And I thought that was really interesting, just knowing what your needs are. Absolutely. Of course, you have to pick a level of service based upon your needs. As we talked about and are talking about, not all distributors are created equally. You've got kind of basic distribution platforms like DistroKid, CD Baby, TuneCore. They basically upload, etc. And that's kind of it. Then you've got second tier distributors like Stem, Level, and Sparta, which are more selective with mm-hmm. the artists they take on as clients. They may do a little bit more. The third and more involved tier of distribution is, all, is often dubbed label services. 
businesses. Companies that are owned by major labels sometimes, which is like AWOL and The Orchard, Virgin Music Label and Artist Services and InGrooves, uh, ADA, all of those companies are... Again, it's that kind of gray area. They are distributors, but they also do label services. And right. so you've got, you know, and as they say, the, the second and third tier, are, they're quite fluid, these tiers, what, what they offer. So you really have to kind of know what you're looking to do and who's doing what you want to do. Yep. And the last thing I'll say on that kind of that third tier that you talked about is that some of them have in-house A&R teams that are scouting for right. talent as well. And sometimes they have, you know, sync teams. But you're going to pay more uh, for that level of service. Those advances range from yeah. 10 to 25 percent of master royalties, and there are some joint ventures and some other things. But what you just laid out, those three tiers of distribution, um, if you don't take anything else out of this discussion, I think that is really key uh, to your decision as an indie artist. You know what distributor you should go for. The next point they make is that you should consider a partner that specializes in your genre. You know, we don't have to go too deep into this, but, you know, Empire, for example, is really known, you know, for urban hip hop. I mentioned ADA and their strength in in Latin, you know, and then we you just talked about TikTok's sound on and SoundCloud's repost, you know, those divisions, you know, that they've they've done pretty well with developing artists. So um, consider, you know, your partner in what their strengths are. Yeah, indeed. Uh, one of the things they mentioned is avoid cold submissions, uh, which, of course, basically is submission pages where you can share your work for consideration. Really avoid those and then go with the distributor that cares, you know, find, you know, kind of do a little research and see a, for a variety of reasons what they're into and maybe they're into you. Um, yeah. You know, you, they, you want your distributor to be enthusiastic about what you're doing. And oh, yeah. You know, you well, want kind of hard. Yeah. yeah you, you don't want ambivalence. No, um, absolutely. You know, go where you're celebrated, not tolerated. I'm telling you, if you sound, surround <laughs> yourself with evangelists on any level, whether it's, you know, label, distribution, management, uh, whoever it is, if you surround yourself with believers that uh, evangelists that can't wait to help you out and use their relationships and their skills, uh, that's where uh, the magic happens. And just really to put a bow on this, they talk about you, know, you can ask for payments directly from collaborators, and that's huge. You know, uh, some distributors like STEM have a system to send royalty payments directly to the collaborators, which is really mm -hmm. interesting. And then the last Very. one is, you know, some of them offer advances. But as they say in this piece, you know, make sure that you have a good music industry uh, attorney when you're starting to talk about advances. Yes, you are. That's uh, because uh, things can go way sideways <laughs> sometimes if you don't have that representation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, all good things. And, you know, kind of like we've been talking about, it is really confusing. And if you just go to the the, the landing page of any of these distributors, um, they're lovely, you know, and it's, it, it's feel-good stuff and it's like empowering yeah. But again, you, you got to do a little deeper dive to find out what their expertise is and yeah. what, what those kind of tiers that, that exist in this world of distribution. Is it a tier that matches what you're looking to do? Yeah. And look at the, 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 the artists that yeah. they have. I always tell people, look at the website, yeah. look at artists that you'd want to collaborate with, tour with, that you love the music of, or it feels like it's really close to what you're trying to do. You want to be with uh, a distributor and a label for that matter that gets you, you know, mm -hmm. that understands your genre, your mood, your, uh, your narrative, all of that. 
And again, if you do that, um, really great things will happen. So this is just an amazing deep dive into distribution. You know, we encourage you to subscribe to Billboard Pro. Uh, it, I mean, this piece alone is worth the price of admission. And uh, there's a, a piece that we won't go deep into, but they talk about who the top music distributors are and a little bit about what their strengths and, and weaknesses are. And uh, they talk about some of the ones that we've mentioned here. There are a couple on there that you may never have heard of, um, but you should kind of dig through there because they talk about other artists that they have, maybe some management companies they work with, what their strengths and weaknesses are, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, you and I have never really done uh, an episode that was based on one article or one series of articles like this, but there, there was so much there that I felt like we really needed to focus a little bit on distribution uh, this week, but just such great work from those guys over at Billboard this week. Amazing stuff. And it really puts an exclamation point on, you know, because you and I both came from music, being musicians, you know, wanting to be signed or wanting to get that, that label deal or release an album or whatever. And, um, you know, we live in miraculous times because it's, first of all, the tools to create music are so much cheaper. Um, and then, you know, we used to, we grew up in an era when you had to go to a recording studio. And, uh, and then, and then to kind of get you, you, so you can record inexpensively, you can get, you can get your music out inexpensively, and you can get your music on Spotify, on Apple Music, everywhere yeah. inexpensively. It's unbelievable the opportunities that that artists have now with yeah. with all of these tools, all of these different flavors of distribution um, to get your your product out, and it's fantastic. But with a big asterisk by that statement. It's a lot to learn, and it's a lot to know, and it's a lot to research. Yeah. And um, there are there are so many different overlapping things in this world. Again, the 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 difference between a label and a distributor is very gray now. Yeah, it didn't really used to. It's be. fluid. It's very fluid. So, uh, if you are that person, that artist that is looking to to move into this direction, or to find a switch distributors, or or just for your first time relationship with a distributor, boy, you got to read through all of this stuff. Great resource. And learn the differences. Absolutely fantastic. Oh boy, Jay, it's it is dense. We had a great time, kind of just. I mean, it, I, I it was so much to to read through and learn about. It uh, my knowledge has increased greatly over just the last couple of days as I was pouring through this stuff. What yeah, a great mine series! Too. Yeah, tipping the hat to the kids over at Billboard without a doubt. Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned, that Billboard Pro subscription is really worth it. It is fantastic and yep, worth um, every penny. Worth every penny. And as Jay and I wrap up this edition, I certainly want to thank our our wonderful, wonderful uh, sponsors yeah. that, that help us do this every week, Bandzoogle, our good friends at HypeBot and Bands in Town. Big thanks. And, uh, and Jay, here we are. We're, we're knocking down another episode, and we're going to crank out with another one next week. So we sure appreciate everyone listening in to this week's episode. Big thanks to the folks over at Billboard again for uh, putting this entire series together. It was, it was fantastic. And uh, on that note, Jay and I will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.